The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter 2, verses 18 to 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, good morning. It is great to worship God together today. My name is Josiah Lewenberger. If we haven't yet met, I oversee our ministry, the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work, where we really seek to equip followers of Jesus to live on mission in their everyday lives where God has called you to be in the community. And so I'm grateful to share God's word this morning. As you heard Dr. Filson share, if you were here at the outset of our service, this is a 50th anniversary celebration for us in our denomination this week. We have a lot to celebrate. I also want to take a moment to pray as we begin. Uh, We had some significant loss in our denomination this week as well. You may have heard of the passing of Dr. Timothy Keller, a man whose ministry and writing has just been a source of inspiration and hope to so many of us, a close friend and mentor to our own pastor, Scott. Uh, We also, this week, we remember Dr. Harry Reeder who passed away, pastor of Briarwood PCA in Birmingham. You may have heard of that as well. And I know there are many in our congregation who have a close connection with that church as he passed away in a car accident this week. And so I wanna lift up these communities, uh, these families in their time of loss, and also just recognize that we're a people of hope and we celebrate as well with them in their resurrection life. And so why don't we turn towards the Lord together as we begin our message here this morning. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to gather in community and be among your people. We recognize that we gather globally as a church every Sunday, and God, we're thankful for the tradition that you've drawn us into here at Christ Prez. Uh, This morning, we give you thanks for the lives of Dr. Timothy Keller and Dr. Harry Reeder, their faithful service, the legacy that they leave behind of men who love the gospel and invested that into others. And we pray that that testimony would far outlive any uh, time that any, any one of us would have as your gospel moves forward into all of eternity to the glory of God, we pray that you'd be near to their families in this time as they miss them. God, would you be among us as we look at your word that you would speak to us in heart and mind, that it would guide us, that it would encourage us and challenge us according to your will in our lives. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are new or visiting or need a refresher, we are in a series called A New Life in the book of 1 Peter. 
And the Apostle Peter is writing to a collection of churches scattered throughout the Mediterranean and Asia Minor. And specifically, he's writing to encourage them in the midst of some hardship that they were experiencing in the face of opposition from the Roman Empire as well as the Jewish religious establishment. Last week, if you were here, Lyric, he spoke on these words that are directed towards obeying civil authorities. What does faithful Christian living look like in regard to our obedience to those who God has entrusted with power among us in the domestic realm. And today we look at what it looks like for followers of Jesus to live faithful to Christ within our own households. And these specific instructions are focused towards the servant and master relationship. And interestingly, a number of resources that I read in preparing for this pointed out that perhaps the most direct crossover this passage can have for followers of Christ today is as it relates to relationships with supervisors, employers, coaches. It can be very relevant in those areas. And so certainly this is a passage for us to be considering here in this time at Christ Pres. And I'll tell you, as I prepared to teach this weekend, God really used this word of scripture to encourage me. It shows us just how every piece of, of God's word as he's revealed himself is relevant to us in our lives and powerful to us, to encourage us, to teach us. And I hope that God will use this to, to meet you in your own heart and your life here today. Oftentimes we save the punchline for the end of the story, but I want to be clear here right from the get-go that today's passage is about the ability of God to redeem suffering and to restore broken relationships. And what we'll see as we dig into this word together is that it is in messy and complex scenarios where pain has been caused and hurt has taken place, that sometimes we see the beauty of the gospel shine forth in some of the most profound ways. In those times where we can't seem to find the direction forward ourselves, there's always hope in the gospel. And sometimes it's in our most difficult moments that we wouldn't wish upon ourselves that we really come to see and experience the depth of God's grace in a whole new way. You know, I want to share with you a story. A few years ago, I was officiating a wedding when my wife and I were living in Pennsylvania. And this was really fun. The couple whose wedding I was officiating attended the same college as my wife and I. And they had even participated on the cross-country team. And I ran cross-country at this school. And so there are a number of people who I recognized who were there in attendance at the wedding. And as I was officiating, I looked out and I saw the cross-country coach from that school where I attended college. He was my coach. But I'll tell you, when he and I met eyes, there was a story between the two of us that he knew and that I knew, and no one else there was aware of, but there was a lot of history involved. You see, I ran for him my first year attending that school, and we didn't hit it off great. Uh, Myself, along with a number of other members of the team, felt that he had a leadership approach that was domineering to the point of being inappropriate, and I didn't feel comfortable participating on the team. And so I discussed this with him. We had a number of conversations and I decided after that year I was going to opt out and no longer run cross country at that college. We had walked away from that, didn't really have any further conversation in my time at school. And so when I saw him at the wedding, we gave each other a friendly nod. We smiled, but I'll be honest, we did not have a heart to heart that ended in a hug. And we ended that time as my wife and I left without really any in-depth conversation. I'll tell you, two days later, I was checking my email and I noticed in my inbox that there was a message from this coach. 
and I was very surprised to receive it. When I opened up the email, there was a word from this coach where he wanted to let me know that after I'd left that wedding, they took a team picture where every alumni of the program got together. And he said, I wanted you to know that though you're on the team only for a year and things between us didn't end the way that either of us would have hoped, I would have wanted you to be a part of that picture and I was really sorry that you weren't still around. You know, I've grown a lot since the time that I was there and God has humbled me. I can see that there are things that I, I did in my leadership as a younger man that aren't the way that I do things today. And he said, I want you to know that when we sign our messages to one another on our team now, we end them with uh, our school mascot was the Wolverines. He said, I want you to know when we end our emails together, we sign them Wolverine love. And so he signed that message to me, Wolverine love. I hope we can get together for lunch sometime soon. And I'll be honest, I was really surprised by this. I took him up on his offer. I met him on campus. We had lunch and I'll be truthful to say that I own my side of it as well because there are certainly things uh, that I did in that relationship that I would look back 15 years later and, and say, I hope I've grown too. And God used that to be a real time of encouragement for both of us and we were able to move forward in a positive way. That story, though there's a lot of difficult baggage in the background, it brought me such joy to be a part of what God did there. You know, as we look at today's passage, I think that there are some truths that God can use to encourage each and every one of us that shine through here about the ability of the gospel to bring restoration and, and redemption into our own brokenness. And you can see these on the back of your bulletin if you're following along. The first is this. In the kingdom of God, all people are deserving of dignity and respect. That's the first key truth. The second is, it's a God-honoring thing to endure unjust suffering is an act of faith. Maybe a surprising one there. And then finally, the gospel gives Christians a certain hope in the ability of God to redeem our suffering and restore our broken relationships. So let's look again at the passage. We're going to begin here in verse 18, if you're following along, where Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This is where the first key truth emerges, that in the kingdom of God, all people are deserving of dignity and respect. And I'd even add this sub point under that, even the people who we might feel don't deserve it. You see, the servant-master relationship that Peter is speaking into here is one that was marked by a lot of tension in Greco-Roman culture. And the particular word that is used for servant here is oiketai. And this is a particular type of worker who supported a family in their everyday life. Someone who had a very relational element to their work, a role that was often held for a set period of time. And so there's a distinction between this word and the word doulos, which is used for bond servant or slave often throughout the New Testament, both in its relational nature as well as in being a more temporary type of work. Make no mistake, this was still a very vulnerable position to hold in society that involved limitations to one's personal freedom. People who served as these type of workers often came from a variety of ethnic and cultural backgrounds, typically to fulfill a financial obligation. Maybe they came from a vulnerable position in society to begin with, had no other option to provide for themselves or their families. But again, certainly their work, it involved a relational nature, a closeness with the masters and families that they served. And this would have come with an expectation that there would have been reasonable treatment. But 
what we can infer from Peter's words here is that fear would have been an everyday part of life for these workers. There were power dynamics that were undeniably stacked against them in a culture that didn't consider slaves as full persons deserving of the same rights as ordinary citizens. And so they would have been susceptible to mistreatment or injustice without their masters having any fear for repercussion. Fear was an everyday part of life for slaves. We might be surprised to hear this, but fear would have been a normal part of life for masters as well. One commentator writes, in the social world of Paul's day, there was a genuine fear of slaves. In Rome, slaves were prohibited from wearing distinctive clothing for fear that they would discover how numerous they were and start a revolt. And so there's this messy dynamic that goes both ways in this first part of the passage. But we see loud and clear, the Bible communicates from the very beginning that all people are created in the image of God. We are made in his likeness. And as such, we are deserving of respect and to be treated with dignity. There's not one person who God has ever made who's not fully valued in his sight. And so as it relates to this principle of the image of God, the value of every person belonging to each and every one of us, this is really embedded in the text, first and foremost in speaking to servants by the very fact of the matter that Peter is writing to them. In Jewish and Stoic duty codes of this nature, these words of instruction, typically it was only the master who was addressed, not those who served them. Like I said, society at large didn't consider slaves or servants to be full persons. And so instructing a slave on their moral responsibilities, what does that have to do with anything? They don't deserve to be addressed in such a way would have been the thought of this culture. But not so in the church. The church treated servants as full and equal persons. And so the fact that there are ethical responsibilities and moral obligations that Peter instructs these people with here is really a display of their dignity and, and value and agency. He speaks to, to them with these words of discipleship. And that is a profound display of respect for all people is made in the image of God. I think when we wrestle with passages like this that relate to slavery and servitude, they can be hard for us to wrap our minds around, right? I think it's worthy for us to take a, a quick aside as it's hard for us to stomach or at least to know how to make intellectual sense or emotional sense of passages like today's. Peter, he certainly doesn't condone abusive behavior of masters here or the institution of slavery, but he doesn't directly speak against it either. And nowhere in the early church do we read a call for slaves to revolt in scripture or to protest or to, to claim what's theirs in terms of just treatment. I hope that you and I would agree that all people deserve that as a fundamental human right, that that would be a direct outworking of our beliefs and convictions based on scripture. But why is it that the New Testament doesn't speak against slavery in a more direct way? You know, one author writes this as a response to that question, that the apostles knew the doom of slavery and the cruelty which it involved lay in the slow, sure pressure of the Christian way of life. And so the doom of slavery laid in the slow, sure pressure of the Christian way of life. What this person is pointing out 
is that early church leaders weren't primarily concerned about changing the social institutions, but having the gospel change people's hearts. Because the aim of the Christian faith isn't to simply see behavioral change, but it's to see heart change and then actions to follow thereafter. And so what we have throughout scripture, such as in the words of the Apostle Paul in writing a letter to Philemon that we spent uh, weeks looking at last year, right around this same time. The question that we in the church would want to grapple with is, how can someone be both the property of another person and also an image bearer of God? Or for us as Christians, how can someone be both your slave and your brother or sister? That's the question that scripture wants us to grapple with. And so while the Bible doesn't directly condemn slavery, it's, it's so clear that throughout history, the scriptures have played an absolutely vital role in dismantling institutional injustice in so many societies. And so Peter here in verse 18, he affirms all people are deserving of dignity and respect. And the hard truth in here for us is that's just as much true for masters as it is for the servants. And so really Peter's words here is a remind, are a reminder to the servants. Your masters are image bearers too. They may be participating in this unjust system and, and some of them may have treated you in harsh ways. And make no mistake, God is opposed to sin. He's opposed to this brokenness that is made manifest in these types of situations. And there are consequences for sin. But let's continue to track along with Peter and what he writes. Picking back up in verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and you are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And so verse 19, Peter says, it's a gracious thing to suffer unjustly. And what he's emphasizing with that phrase, it is a gracious thing, is that it is commendable to God. God approves of it when his people suffer as an act of faith in him. When his people press on in faithfulness in the midst of suffering, it is commendable to God. And so again, that first key truth in the kingdom of God, all people are deserving of dignity and respect. And now right here, it's a, it's a God-honoring thing to endure unjust suffering is an act of faith. It's important for us to recognize Peter, he does spell out a distinction there in verse 20 that how is it commendable to endure a beating for doing wrong? There's nothing honorable about smarting off, smarting off to your boss and being punished for it, right? That's backwards logic. He's putting that same principle into application. But to persevere in faith through unjust suffering, that is a gracious thing, Peter says. Again, he's not excusing the mistreatment these people have suffered. Full stop. But what he is saying is that God doesn't pass on situations where brokenness is evident when choosing to display his ability to redeem because these moments are some of his greatest opportunities to show the power of the gospel. Listen again to the last part of the passage that we heard. 
minutes ago when Aaron read for us, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so what Peter is writing to the church here is that in Jesus, we have the perfect example of one who endured suffering unjustly for the sake of a greater purpose to accomplish our restoration to God. And in this section of his teaching, Peter, you may be familiar with some of the words and phrases he uses. He gives a nod back to the prophet Isaiah and this image of the suffering servant, the sent one from God who did no wrong to stand in our place. He's pointing us back to Jesus, the power of the gospel, that on the cross, Jesus gave himself. He willfully gave up his life, enduring the penalty for sin and brokenness that you and I deserve in our own willful disobedience to God, Jesus took on the abuse. He gave his life in a display of of self-sacrificial love in a method that would have been excruciatingly painful and, and culturally humiliating. Jesus Christ willfully engaged that setting out of love for us that we might be restored to God, our heavenly father, that our broken relationship with the perfect God who made us, that separates us from him, that that would be bridged, that we would be able to receive every right that belongs to his own perfectly loved children, that God himself would call us sons and heirs, each and every one of us through faith in Jesus Christ. That is a promise that any one of us can receive who would confess that we don't deserve it, that we are broken and lost on our own, but we look in hope, we look in faith to what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. My friends, this is a story of a God who is proactive in his love for us. Paul writes in the book of Romans that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And here in the church, Jesus is our hope. He is our hope for suffering to be redeemed and for brokenness to be restored because that is what he has accomplished on our behalf. We don't have hope that we're just good people who have it all together and we can clean ourselves up and turn towards God with our best efforts and on a good day, he'll say, you know what, you really tried hard, kudos to you, we're gonna call it even. We don't hope in that. And as it relates to our own broken relationships, we don't hope that, hey, you know what, you and I at the end of the day, we're good people, we can patch this up, right? That's not our hope because we know ourselves all too well. We are internally conflicted, right? We're beyond hope on our own. We need the perfect work of Jesus Christ on our behalf and his work on our behalf is finished. He's accomplished what we need to be forgiven and restored to God as individuals. And he, through the power of his spirit at work inside of us, is able to patch up our relationship with himself eternally. And he's able to restore us to one another in a powerful way, all because of his grace. That is the story of Jesus, that if we are his, gives definition to our lives. And my friends, you and I, we have the opportunity to be a part of new and God-honoring stories, stories of suffering redeemed and broken relationships restored as a result of the spirit inside of us. 
God loves these kind of stories. God loves stories where pain wasn't wasted, but actually played a role in moving people forward into new and God-honoring growth. God loves stories where it looked like restoration wasn't possible, but unexpected healing took place and repair of what was broken led to greater strength than what was ever there before. These kind of stories, they can unfold on a grand scale that make international news and they can unfold in our own personal lives in ways that don't even make our own social media feeds. As I was preparing for this weekend's teaching, the story that came to mind, the first story that came to mind like this for me was the story of Nelson Mandela and the 1995 Rugby World Cup. I like to watch sports documentaries as I'm working out. And I remember a few years ago, I was watching this ESPN 30 for 30 episode called The 16th Man that tells the story of this, of this event. And it literally choked me up to the point of tears. I was just doing an easy spin on my bike, so I couldn't blame it on doing a hard workout or something. Forgive this detail if you're already familiar with the story, but the 16th man tells the story of Nelson Mandela seeking to unify his nation of South Africa coming out of apartheid, of apartheid. And Nelson Mandela, if you're familiar with his background, he's a leading figure in that struggle, this institutionalized system of racism and social division that marked the country from the 40s through the early 1990s. Nelson Mandela sought to change that system both through ways that were good and some ways that were destructive and in 1962 he was arrested and imprisoned by the government for conspiracy. He was sent to Robben Island, an isolated prison off the coast of Cape Town and he spent 27 years there. He was raised in the Methodist church as a kid And though Nelson Mandela wasn't vocal about his faith in his public life, he did share that his faith played a key factor in sustaining him throughout that time. As the years went on, Nelson Mandela became a symbol for the anti-apartheid movement and his lengthy imprisonment gained international exposure for the injustice of the system. So in the early 90s, when that began to crumble, Nelson Mandela was released from prison and began work with the standing president, an opposition leader to establish a democratic government in their country. In 1994, he was elected the first black president in their first democratic election. But the problem was the nation remained deeply divided. Many black black South Africans were skeptical of initiatives for unification even as many white South Africans opposed his desires to see the country become one. There was a gridlock that couldn't be broken. And so this is where the documentary picks up. South Africa was set to host the 1995 Rugby World Cup. And Nelson Mandela had an idea that he could support the Springboks, their national team that had long been associated with white South African culture. And if he could do so in such a way where he could rally the nation around this team with the eyes of the world upon them, that everyone could get behind them and maybe the team could succeed and win. Possibly that could help his his team move forward into a new season of healing. And so Nelson Mandela, he threw his support behind the spring box in an effort to repair this rift. As the World Cup began, again, many of his black supporters were skeptical But as time went on, they saw that Mandela was truly invested and they slowly 
and collectively began to follow suit and the team was playing really well. A black man interviewed in the documentary described how the change began to unfold in their country, how after one World Cup game, a white South African man came passing by his home in his car and according to how things normally work, the man hung his arm out the window and he shook it at him and he yelled. But this time it was different. The man shouted out with a cheer of joy and the black man shook his fist back at him as they both grinned at one another, shouting in jubilation as a celebration of their team's victory. South Africa made it all the way to the World Cup final and Nelson Mandela showed up at that final game for the first time wearing a team jersey, the South Africa Springbok jersey emblazoned with the logo of the Springbok, the symbol of the opposition party that imprisoned him for a third of his life. He wore it over his heart. South Africa won that game to claim the 1995 Rugby World Cup, and it was a beautiful moment. Hearing the players describe it in that documentary, 20 years later, some of the toughest guys you have ever seen are reduced to tears. And after the game, I love it, a reporter was interviewing one of the South African players, and he asks him, how did it feel to have the tremendous support of 60,000 South Africans behind you today? And the player's reply was, We didn't have 60,000 South Africans behind us today. We had 43 million. It's an incredible story. It's a God-honoring story. And it shows us the difference that it can make for an entire nation when one person chooses forgiveness. When one person commits to being proactive in seeking restoration and opens others up to the possibility that healing can take place. That is a God-honoring story. These kinds of stories, they have the power to show people who don't know anything about Jesus, something about the nature of our faith, that we know a God who loves to heal and loves to restore. This is a core application of the gospel. I'm so glad that when Scott asked me if I was free this weekend back in February or March, this is the passage that I was sent. My friends, we are in a season right now at Christ Prez where there is healing that needs to take place, where there are broken relationships that need to be restored. And this is a moment of opportunity for us to experience the healing and unifying power of the gospel in a profound way and to show others the nature of our faith. This is an opportunity for us to experience the transforming power of the gospel in an amazing way that will leave a legacy for our church in our city that will stand the test of time. Do we want to be a part of that? There's one last story I want to share with you this morning. I was talking with a friend as I prepared for this week's teaching about some of the themes that were really coming up and hitting home for me in the passage. And this friend shared with me how growing up her dad was a pastor. And at one point in their family story, they made a move across the country when her dad went through a nasty break in ministry. There had been a disagreement between her father and one of the elders in the church that resulted in her dad being pushed out of the church. Her family moved thousands of miles away. She shared with me a memory of a day nine years after that when an RV pulled into their church parking lot 
and she was outside with her dad and who stepped out of that RV but the elder who had spearheaded the campaign against her dad at the former church. And she told me when I saw him step out, I didn't know why he was there, but I remembered, we do not like this man. Unexpectedly, the man walked up to her dad and greeted him with a smile and a hug. And he shared that he was on a cross country road trip. And part of the way that he mapped out this route is he felt a stirring that he needed to come and track down her father in person to apologize. He regretted the way he'd handled the situation between them and the fallout that it led to. And he needed to say that he was sorry. It's an absolutely beautiful story. Do you think they'll ever forget it? Each of us, we have moments in our lives where we have the opportunity to be a part of that kind of story. I wanna ask you, is there a broken relationship in your life where you long to experience that kind of restoration? Maybe it's a relationship with a sibling, a friend, a coworker, a former roommate. Maybe right now God is elbowing you in the ribs or maybe your spouse is elbowing you in the ribs. Maybe someone's coming to mind where you can mirror the proactive love of Jesus in that relationship by putting yourself out there and being willing to take the first step toward restoration. It can start with something just as simple as praying for that other person. God, would you soften my heart towards this person? That's a great beginning. Maybe you progress to sending an email or a text, opening an opportunity to get together for lunch or to coffee, to have a real conversation, to genuinely own your side of what came between you, to express your care and invite the possibility for restored relationship. That's what you and I can control, right? Healing takes time. Sometimes it takes distance. But the truth of God's word that we have received today is that we know a God who commends the faithful suffering of his people. We know a God who loves to restore what is broken. We have an opportunity to be a part of that in our own lives, that the legacy that we have as individuals who are forgiven, who are restored to God, can be a people who extend that into our own relationships. Would that be our testimony? Let's pray about this together. Father, I am grateful for your word, the way that it encourages us, the way that it challenges us, us, the ways that it speaks to our hearts and minds about the depth of your love for us. We thank you that you're a God who meets us in the midst of our own messiness, that you seek us out and proactively show us your love, even as we are lost in drawing us to know the grace that is in your son for broken and people, broken and lost people who would simply look to him and believe. And God, we pray that by the power of your spirit at work within us, we would be a people who bring this into every area of our lives, that we would invite your healing, your restoring presence into our own broken relationships, that others would see what unfolds. God, the counterintuitive nature of healing and repair that is possible, that is God glorifying, that happens because you are the God who, who has restored us to yourself. Would that be true of us as people? Would that be true of us as a community? In Jesus' name, amen.